if you would be so kind, uh, fellow students, to turn to 1 Samuel 8. We'll get rolling in uh, 1 Samuel 8. What we're going to see today is the transition uh, from the nation of the nation of Israel from a loose tribal confederation to a nation state. This is a rather dramatic change for them. You know, if you look at history and you change the way people are governed, usually change in governance is very difficult and it usually is accompanied by a fair amount of violence. There's uh, power tends to be pretty addictive and very few people, if you've noticed, relinquish power voluntarily. They have kind of be pried out of their cold, dead fingers. Actually, that's really true. Historically, power changes hands in governmental agencies, usually only when the current ruler dies and assumes room temperature. In any social structure, in any social structure, if you have two people in a room, ultimately the primary question is always going to rotate around who shall rule? Who's going to be in charge? That question is just part of the human condition. What we do know, if there's no governing structure, the result is chaos. And human beings do not live really well with anarchy. They would rather live with totalitarianism than anarchy. So if you look back at the period of the judges, which we're just coming to the end of, the period of the judges was a period of moral anarchy. Uh, pretty much, if you want to find out that, the very last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If You know, you look around and you say, well, we're kind of headed that direction today. A lot of people are doing what's right in their own eyes, but we still do have a police force. If you want to find out how the human condition really behaves, is you see the police go on strike, or you see... Uh, a national catastrophe or hurricane or something and find out how long it takes people to start looting. It doesn't take long for, quote, civilized people to behave pretty badly at that point in time. So during this period of time, the only thing that kept the 12 tribes of Israel together was the word of God, the Mosaic law. That was their constitution. And from time to time, God would raise up a judge and empower that judge like a Samson or a Jephthah or a Gideon or an Othniel to perform supernatural acts of deliverance and keep the tribes together. Now, God's now going through a sea change in how he wants Israel to be governed. We're going from a confederation of 12 tribes, very loose confederation, by the way. Pretty much every tribe does their own thing. Now God wants to build a centralized nation state called Israel. And that's what he raised up Samuel to facilitate moving 12 tribes into one nation. Verse 1 of chapter 8. It came about that when Samuel was young, he, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Samuel was young. He was only about 60 years old at this time. All right? <clears throat> That's pretty young, isn't it? Come on, help me out here. Good gravy. It says old, and I'm, you know, 60 years old is not old. Otherwise, everybody here is in deep trouble, right? He's about 60 to 65 at this point in time. Now, Samuel doesn't know it yet, but the most important part of his life's work is in front of him. Among other things, he has to anoint two kings of Israel. He's got to anoint Saul, and he's got to anoint David. He doesn't know that yet. One of the things that I take from that, and I'm just going to give you this for free, whatever work you have done in your past, your most important work is yet to come, right? Right? What's past is past. You can't do anything about that. Your job is to say, Lord, how can I be spiritually productive going forward? If you've got a week to live, 
make it productive. If you've got 15 years to live, make it productive. Samuel was busy doing the father's business. Judges, by the way, were not hereditary appointments. Your sons didn't necessarily become judges. The priesthood was hereditary, but not judges. So God called out the judges, but Samuel, as you'll find out later, has started the school of the prophets. And that's not, I'm going to teach you how to get divine revelation because God alone determines that. But he trained the prophets, these young men in the Mosaic law, and they were not going to replace him as a judge, but they were going to know how to impartially render judgment in legal cases based on the Mosaic law. So they actually acted like a, a municipal judge, a civic judge at that point in time. Now Samuel was old enough to know that he needed help. Israel's about 150 miles long from Dan to Beersheba. Actually, it's a little bit shorter than that. It's 150 miles all the way from Dan all the way down to Eliot, which is on the, uh, the Red Sea. So it's probably 120 miles from Dan to Beersheba. Now, if you're doing that on horseback, you're not going to be able to hit all the towns if you're going to be a circuit-riding judge, which he was. So he appointed his two sons, especially in southern Israel, because he was in Ramah, which was north of Jerusalem. Verse 2 tells us, Now the names of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging at Beersheba, which is the very southern end of Israel. His sons, however, <clears throat> you don't like to read the next part of this, did not walk in his ways. For those of you parents that have children not walking in your ways, you need to know that godly men like Samuel have been there and done that before you. But they turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Here's the principle. Grace is not heredity. Hereditary, I can't even spell. You're going to have to re-spell that word up there. I, I missed it. Grace is not hereditary. Parents can influence, but each person must choose to follow Jesus themselves. Right? God has no grandchildren. You've all heard that, right? This reminds us a little bit of Eli. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli's two sons yielded to the lust of the flesh. Samuel's two sons are guilty of greed, which means they were willing to accept bribes in exchange for a favorable legal decision. You're going in front of a judge. Before you see the judge, you slip a few hundreds here and there, and that guarantees you're going to get a favorable legal decision. That's what Samuel's boys were doing. Clearly, uh, it's, you know, when you read this, you say, man, some things never change, right? Human nature is wicked, it's evil, and the Bible is very, very contemporary. I mean, it's talking to life as it currently is. In this particular case, like father, not like sons. You know, we often say like father, like sons. Well, in this case, his two boys were not behaving like Samuel. Samuel was a God-fearing man, and uh, these two uh, boys were clearly not. They were making very different personal choices. See, sometimes children turn out bad because of poor parenting. Before I had children, I was convinced that was true. You know, before you have children, you have all sorts of theories about how it should go. If the children's misbehaving, you got stupid parents. It's pretty obvious. Then my children misbehaved, so I was a stupid parent. Yeah, boy, that's an easy one to sign up for. <laughs> Scripture doesn't indict Samuel for poor parenting. Now, Samuel may have been, quote, busy with ministry around. He might have not been around to give his needed attention to his sons. On the other hand, he might have been a wonderful parent, right? Sometimes children are just rebellious, correct? Did you, when you were a child, ever do anything your parents didn't want you to do? 
Does that mean your parents were rotten parents? No, it just means you were a rebellious child, right? Same thing, right? Everybody is going to make their own choices. Everybody is going to make. Just because you have compliant children or grandchildren doesn't mean you're a good parent. They just happen to be compliant, right? Just because you have disobedient children doesn't mean you're a bad parent either. Now, you might be, but it, your children's decision... <laughs> I was gonna slip that right in there, hoping you guys wouldn't get it. Man, I, you're awake. That's good. You're all awake. This is very good. <clears throat> in any case, <laughs> grace is not hereditary. This is why you pray your eyes out for your children. You pray for your children because every one of us is a moral agent. Every one of us has to make a decision to follow Jesus ourselves. Amen? Right? Just like you. Every individual chooses, every individual lives with the consequences. So Samuel, a man of God, is getting his heart broken because of his sons. And it gets worse, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel, this is the kind of the, the, the wise men of Israel, kind of the ruling groups of each one of the 12 tribes, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And then, by the way, this is a surprise meeting. They didn't tell him we're getting together. They just show up. And they said to him, Behold, you are old. Man, that's hardcore, isn't it? Man, that's just cold. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And this isn't the first time that Israel's leadership has pressed for a king. When Gideon was judging in, in Israel, they said, you and your sons will judge over us. And Gideon said, no, the Lord's going to rule over you. And a few years later, at Abimelech's conspiracy, they also requested a king. So these 12 elders are representing all the 12 tribes. They're looking to the future, and they don't like what they see in the future. Samuel's tenure is coming to a close, right? He's 60 to 65. And they don't want to go back to the bad old days with a couple of corrupt judges running Israel like they had with Eli's kids. Remember Hophni and Phinehas? Very corrupt. And these elders are remembering that. It's interesting in the book of Judges, it says over and over again, as long as the judge was alive, the nation of Israel served the Lord. When the judge died, I mean, they turned their back on the Lord and went and served the idols very, very quickly. Now, Samuel's not even dead yet, and they want to kick him to the curb, right? Now, this is called an early retirement, right? This is a forced early retirement. They're going, we're terminating your judgeship, your leadership. We want a king. Now, if you've ever been rejected because you're old, this is it, right? It's been more than 20 years since God miraculously rescued Israel from the Philistines at Ebenezer. And in 20 years, the whole nation's forgotten it. Just off their memory, right? This generation's doing exactly what their parents' generation did. You know what their parents' generation trusted to win the battle for them? We talked about last week. They took the Ark of the Covenant in as kind of a magic symbol, a rabbit's foot, if you will, because this thing had the power to save the battle for us. And this generation's putting their trust in what? A human king. You know, there are some people that really put their faith in politicians. There are, right? I know you do, because on November, you're going to show up and vote, right? 
Some of you will vote from obedience, which is a good one. But regardless, pray, 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 pray. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, pray. In the United States, even though our coins say in God we trust, what many of people trust in is our military power, our government, our economy, our guns, our democracy, and ultimately ourselves, right? We're going to find this out. You're going to look at this and you're going to say, this is so contemporary, it's amazing. Now, it wasn't wrong for Israel to ask for a king. God had already made provision for a king for Israel. The king was part of God's plan. However, God told, knew that Israel was going to want a king that behaved just like the pagan nations. God said, I don't want a king that behaves just like the pagan nations. I'm going to write the criteria for how my king's going to behave, right? And he wrote that criteria in Deuteronomy 17. Turn to Deuteronomy 17, if you'd be so kind. And we're going to read God's criteria for the king that he wanted over his people. This is, he gave this to Moses, and this was 400 years before this period of time, so it's pretty clear that God had intended for Israel to have a king. If you go to Deuteronomy 17, we'll start at verse 14, and I'm just going to read through God's criteria for the king of Israel. Now, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Think God knew what they were going to do? Of course. Verse 15. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Who's going to do the choosing? God is. Now, verse 15b, he kind of gives you some criteria. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves. You're going to have to have a countryman. So the, the king's got to be a native Israelite. Verse 16, this king shall not multiply horses for himself. In other words, I don't want a king that puts his faith in the military. I want a king that's going to put faith in God. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. That seems real practically good advice, right? Right. Just saying. Last part of verse 17. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold. So I, I want this king not to put their faith in horses. I don't want them to marry many foreign women because they'll lead their heart astray. And I don't want them to greatly multiply silver and gold because they're going to trust in their money. Right? So you got some idols here, potentially. Verse 18. When this king sits on the throne of his kingdom... This is good practice for all of us, by the way. You want something to do, here's a good one to do. He shall write out for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, verse 19, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. I'm a really big believer, <clears throat> you know, when I begin to study the word to bring to you, very first thing I do is type word for word all the scripture. You begin and end with the word. And if, it's a good practice to write it out. When you write it out, it, you, you retain it better. So God is saying, don't trust in this, don't trust in this, don't trust in this, but write the word out and read it every day for the rest of your life. So God had planned for Israel to have a human king, but God was going to do the choosing and God was going to write the standards. See, having a king was not the problem. What was wrong was their reasons for demanding a king and their timing. They wanted a human king because ultimately they didn't want God to rule over them. 
at core, they wanted to be just like the nations. Every nation has their own king. We want a king too. Does this sound like peer pressure? Everybody's got a king. I want a king too. Everybody's got a new car. I want a new car too. Everybody's got a house. Everybody's got, you know, whatever it happens to be. I want to be like them. See, God had called Israel to be different from the nations, right? Israel's glory was that she was ruled by God himself. Israel was supposed to represent God to the nations, not be like the nations. Does this sound like it might apply to us? Jesus said, yes, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're supposed to represent Jesus to the world. Yes? Say yes. You're not supposed to become like the world. Israel's battle is our battle. It's avoiding being conformed to the world, avoiding behaving like the world at that point. See, Israel looked at the pomp and the circumstance of these foreign royalties, and she got envious. You know, it was like, look at the bling of that king. Man, we want some bling like that, right? Look at those bright, shiny trinkets of royalty. We want some of that stuff, right? We want to be just like them. They wanted the king to judge them. They wanted the king to rule over them. They wanted the king to arbitrate, to guarantee that justice would be done. How does Samuel respond? Verse 6. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. I could get that. And the very next phrase. The first thing Samuel did when he found out something he didn't like was what? And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Here's the principle. Prayerlessness is pride. Prayerlessness is pride because it presumes that we can live successfully without God. Samuel does not agree with their assessment. He's unhappy. Now, you know, my first, what I generally do, argue first and apologize second. Ever done that? You know, when there's something somebody says you don't like, open mouth, man. I mean, go after it, right? So if you argue first and apologize second, or you can do what Samuel does, doesn't say anything to them, praise. Very first thing he does is praise. That's very wise. Prayer should always be our first course of action before we take any other action. You know, prayer is not a tool of last resort, right? Prayer is the very first thing you do before you open the toolbox, right? You always do that. Samuel has a long history of praying, long history of praying. 1 Samuel 12, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, very, very interesting. He's addressing the entire nation over the issue of the king. And he is talking to them in verse 23, 1 Samuel 12, 23, and his attitude toward prayer is very evident. It's very convicting too. Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should, see, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Samuel regarded prayerlessness as sinfulness. That's interesting. You know, I'm interested. When we skip prayer because we're running late, do we really view that as sin? You know, most of the time we don't. You know why? Because a lot of times we don't, we're not acutely aware that we need God's help for the day. How many of you are reasonably sure that you can handle a day without prayer? The rest of you liars. I'm telling you, I, I'll tell you why I know that. Because we tackle so many things without prayer. If we tackle something without prayer, what are we saying? I can do it myself. I'm a big boy. 
right? I got my big boy pants on. I don't need God's help, right? Samuel said, if I don't pray for you, I'm sinning against the Lord. Wow. He took prayer pretty seriously. I would suggest that the most effective, loving thing you can possibly do for someone is pray for them. Without exception. Not give them your opinion about what they should do. I know you have a good opinion. You're wise people. But if you really want to help them, pray for them. Now Samuel's praying most of the time for who? For the people of Israel. And now what do they want to do? They want to fire him, right? They want to fire him. That's ingratitude. Samuel sees the kind of the outside of the problem, the visible part of the problem. God sees the inside, the heart of the matter, and God's going to give Samuel the divine diagnosis here, verse 7. Samuel prays the Lord. The Lord says to Samuel, this is shocking. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Warren Wiersbe once said, the greatest ju judgment God can give us is to let us have our own way. The greatest judgment God can give us is to have our own way. When God says, listen to the voice of the people, that should terrify you, right? Because when the will of the people is opposed to the will of God, who do you think's right? God's right, and God is now saying, they're wrong, but give them their wrong way. Let them experience it. See, Israel's request for a human king is really a rejection of her heavenly king. They wanted to replace their king. It's idolatry. God has been their king since Exodus when he gave them the Ten Commandments, and now they want a divorce. That's what this is. They want a divorce. They basically say, I want to divorce my eternal king who has always provided and protected me and I want to submit myself to a sinful, selfish human king who most certainly will fail and abuse me. Right? I mean, this is like trading a Kentucky Derby champion thoroughbred for an old lame donkey. Right? It's like trading in a filet mignon for a three-day-old roadkill. You kind of get in the picture? I mean, you, you could take this on a little bit. That last one was pretty good, huh? You like that? <laughs> I thought about that. <clears throat> so I'm in the store the other day, and I'm looking at filet mignon for 18 bucks a pound, and I'm going, boy, you guys like your dead cow. 18 bucks a pound. Whoa. <clears throat> From a spiritual perspective, Israel is stuck on stupid. This is not a good choice, right? Psalm 103 says, um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and... Forget not all his benefits. It's pretty clear that Israel is forgetting the benefits, right? It's pretty clear that we forget the benefits too, right? Is it pretty easy to forget all the good stuff God has done for you the last few decades? Very, very easy to take it for granted. The truth of it is, if it wasn't for the love of Jesus, I wouldn't be here today. Neither would you, right? Most of you. See, we usually take God's love for granted just like Israel. And God reminds Samuel, Israel's got a long history of spiritual flakiness. Verse 8, God says, Samuel, like all the deeds which Israel has done since the day I brought them out of Egypt. This is over 400 years, even to this very day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. 
So Israel's got a long history of rejecting God, committing spiritual adultery with idols. You know, the truth is, in the Old Testament, Israel is portrayed as the wife of God. And God says over and over again, Israel, you're behaving like a prostitute. You're behaving like a prostitute. You're worshiping idols, you're flaky, you worship me and then you leave and then you come back and you're, you're not consistent. God's saying, Samuel, you're not the only one who's rejected by this people. They've been rejecting me for centuries as their king and now they're rejecting you as my servant. You're in good company, right? You know, when people reject you today because you tell them about Jesus, do you take it personally? They're not rejecting you. They don't even like you, <laughs> right? Where'd you ever get that idea? You feel so much better, yes. They don't like Jesus, right? They love their sin. They don't want to submit to Jesus. You're just the messenger. You're the water boy or girl. You're just carrying the message to them, right? You love them and you pray for them, but understand, it's who, it's your master that they're at war with. It's not you they're at war with. God says to Samuel, Samuel, they've been rejecting me for 400 years and now they want to fire you as judge. You're in pretty good company, right? If they treat you like they treated Jesus, you're in really good company. Count yourself blessed, right? So now God's going to tell Samuel what to do with this request. See, I'd have called down a lightning strike, but you know, that's me, Mr. Impulsive. So verse 9, now then, listen to their voice, however... You shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over you. Now, I want you to write this next principle down. This is probably the most practical principle that we're going to run into in the next 12 months. Because every one of us face it. Here's the principle. All decisions involve costs and benefits. Every decision in your life involves costs and benefits. Wise decisions calculate long-term costs and benefits. Foolish decisions only consider immediate costs and benefits. Write it down, don't look at me. Get a pen out. Every day you make decisions. Every day your children make decisions. Every day your employees make decisions. Every day your coworkers and your grandchildren and your boss, whatever it is, we all make decisions. How do we make good decisions? God says, let them have their way, but warn them that their decision involves costs and benefits. See, Israel's interested in what? The benefits of a monarchy, man. They're looking and saying, if we have a king, we get royal pomp, we get protection from our enemies, we're going to have law and order inside the nation where individual rights are going to get protected. Samuel's warning them of the costs of a monarchy. Loss of land, loss of freedom, loss of children, loss of choice. The nature of royalty, the nature of government is parasitic. Historically, governments are very expensive. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have them. It's just you have to understand the costs of them. Every decision in life has a cost-benefit equation. Now, you know the street name for this principle is? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. You all have heard that? Right, okay. That's the street name. Jesus talked about this a number of times, and he said for every benefits there's a cost, and he called it counting the cost. In Luke 14, 
25 to 33, Jesus is telling the story about a man who's building a tower, building a house, building a castle. But he failed to do the long-term budgeting. He failed to keep track of all the expenses it would take to complete the building. So he got the foundation done, got a few walls done, ran out of money before it got finished. Now he's got a shell. There was a guy here in town who had a shell of a house for a number of years. Right? You run out of money, you run out of reputation, you got a shell of a building, you didn't count the cost. Foolish. He also uses a military example. He says, um, you don't declare war on another country. You don't declare war unless you have first calculated that you can actually win it. Right? You don't declare war and then when they come you go, oh, I don't think we can win this war. Maybe we shouldn't have declared war until we figured that out. Right? Because if you screw that up in military, you die, right? So cost-benefit analysis. Let's talk about it. How many of you ever bought a house? Question, is the ongoing maintenance upkeep of that house more than you initially expected? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> ever bought a car? I was asking Maren about this, and she said, ask them if they've ever bought a garment that said hand wash only. <laughs> Does it cost more in time and money and hassle and maintenance than you expected? Ever been friends with a high maintenance person? Very. I'm so sorry, Carolyn, you married a high maintenance guy. You know, when you're around a high-maintenance person, the outgo is pretty extensive, so the benefits had better be pretty superb, right? They are. <laughs> We're going to get this train right back on track right now, yeah. How many of you ever raised children? How many of you ever raised a puppy? Were all the costs involved, you know, the time and the money and the worry and the puke and the diapers and the care and the commitment, were they more than you anticipated at the very beginning? Yes. You know, it's interesting. People get married all the time without counting the cost, right? Doesn't mean you shouldn't get married. It says count the cost, right? Most people, by the way, I have found are much better at counting the cost of divorce than they are the cost of marriage. You know, once we're in a bad marriage, we're pretty good at saying, now let's count the cost of this thing, right? But when we get married, you have financial costs, emotional costs. When you get married, you have twice the problems and half the time. You had your problems and their problems. And now you got half the time, right? You got the cost of putting up with your spouse's opinions and their habits. Of course, they got to put up with yours too, which is probably worse. The cost of not always having your way. How about counting the costs of an education? or the costs of vocational training. You know, education and training involves immediate costs, right? You gotta pay the tuition, you gotta pay the time, you gotta go to school, whatever school you happen to go to. Is it a good education, a good training, does it pay long-term benefits? So you're willing to go through the training today with all the immediate costs because you want the long-term benefits. You want the long-term gains. You know, if you don't do this, here's what you find. Minimum wage is wonderful at 16. Not so wonderful at 26 and downright ugly at 36, right? 
So we say, well, let's do a cost-benefit analysis of getting some specialized training, whatever it happens to be, or education, however you want to frame that, so that I have a skill set so that it pays benefits down the road. Now, the most important decision you'll ever make is who is your king? Who is your king? Who is your God? There is a cost-benefit equation for following Jesus. There is a cost. There's a benefit. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus stated the cost. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Now, the cost is expensive because here on earth, I live my life for Jesus. I don't live for myself. If I live for myself on earth, when I die, what happens? You lose it all, right? It all stays here, and I enter eternity bankrupt. I'm forever separated from God and God's people. That's called hell. Now, that's a cost that you pay how long? Forever. So this decision-making analysis here is not a small deal. Now, if you want to know the benefits of following Jesus, go to the next two verses. It's Matthew 16, verse 25 and 27. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. So the benefits for living for Jesus are out of this world. Right? Eternity. You get to spend forever in heaven with Jesus. The costs are temporary. I live for Jesus, not myself. I go to war with Satan. I, people that love to sin don't like me. Oh, isn't that sad? Right? By the way, you don't want to be best friends with people that love to sin. Because they will teach you how to do it. You don't want to learn how to do evil. It's okay to be rejected by people that love sin. The benefits of following Jesus are forever, right? Peace with God here on earth, life in heaven forever. So here's the point. Really wise decisions always calculate eternal costs and eternal benefits, right? Satan does just the opposite. Has, ever, has Satan ever tried to convince you that the cost of this sin is going to be minimal? Just do this little thing over here. No one will know. Not a big deal, right? Right? He tries to convince you the costs are little and the benefits are wonderful, which is lie. Because the wages of sin is not life, it's death. You don't enjoy sin, you get enslaved by sin. Right? Satan will tell you, you can enjoy sin without getting enslaved to it. That's a lie. You sin, you practice sin, you get good at it, you get enslaved by it. Samuel says, Israel, if you want a king, do the cost-benefit calculation. What's the king going to cost? Not today, but for the next few centuries. Right? And what's the, what's the benefit of having a king today versus the few centuries? So, verse 10. Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. So Samuel's a faithful prophet. He repeats all of the words to God. And boy, this is not an encouraging message. If you jump to 1 Samuel 8, verse 11, I want you to get a pen out, and I want you to underline the number of times that you see the word take. Take. And I also want you to underline the number of times you see the word him his and himself. And I'm going to read this for you and kind of emphasize it. And Samuel said, verse 11, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots 
and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing, and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war, and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers, and cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, and your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. You getting a picture that monarchy's not cheap? Just a little. How many times did he say take? Six. Six. How many times did you see him, his self? Fourteen. Your. This is a description not just of royalty, folks. This is a description of government in general. Right? All governments require taxes. Taxes are not voluntary. They are extracted by force without Novocaine. It's the nature of taxes, right? All governments require services from their citizens, some voluntary, some forced, you know, the military draft, jury duty, etc. Government is essential. This is not a polemic against government, right? Government was created by God for the benefit of humanity. Here's the point. Government is essential, but government is not free. Do you understand that? Right? Okay, government is not free. People in power over time tend to believe that they deserve more perks than the average person. Would you say that's true of our country? That's not new. It's been going on for thousands of years. God says over and over that this human king will take the best for himself. Do you notice that people in power generally don't choose the worst? They don't choose the bad. People in power generally choose the best I don't see any politician on the way to a meeting, and I'm not critiquing politicians. They have a job to do, but I don't see them driving 14, 15-year-old cars. Somehow they just, you know, I mean, it's the nature of the beast. God is saying, count the cost of a king. He's not saying don't have a king. He says, count the cost. It's expensive. Go into this decision, both eyes open. Verse 18. What's going to happen when you get your king? Are you going to like it? says, then you will cry out in that day for joy because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And you will be so grateful for the one you elected, right? But the Lord will not answer you in that day. How do you respond to that? God says, you're going to regret this and my hearing aid just got turned off. Does that put a little fear in you? Does that make you a little shaky? God, who knows the future, is telling me that this decision is a train wreck and he is not going to rescue me. Have you ever told your children that? Brad, there's, Brad, there's a saying, you made your bed, lie in it. Right? I, let me tell you, I do not ever want to hear verse 18. If God ever says this to you, you should be wetting your pants on your face, falling down, repenting right now. 
This is, God is saying, I'm done. I'm done. Very sobering. Of course, the children of Israel, boy, they're repentant. They're right on it. What do they say in verse 19? They sound like you and I. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our nations. Here's the principle. Oh, this is sober. When you disobey God's word, you will learn from experience what you refuse to learn from instruction. And the tuition is very, very high. When you disobey God's word, you will learn from experience what you refuse to learn from instruction, and the tuition is painful at. See, their request for a king is now morphed into a demand. They refuse to take no for an answer, even when the warning comes from God. There's a little clue what's, what's scaring them here. You know what's got them motivated? The Ammonites are on their eastern border, and they're starting to threaten them. And they start getting nervous. They want a king to do what? Fight their battles for them and impose justice on them. They want the king to do for them what they're unwilling to do for themselves. Does this sound familiar? This is so contemporary, it's scary. Today, we have a world where millions of people want to offload the responsibilities of their own life to somebody else, right? They want somebody to blame for the failure in their life. And by the way, government is a convenient scapegoat for all the problems in life. How many people do you know complain about the government? How many people do you know complain about their stupid decision making? I really screwed that up. If I hadn't made that decision, I wouldn't be here today. I would say it's some fraction of the people that complain about the government. In our world today, people compete for victimhood status. I'm a more persecuted victim than you are. So I deserve more pity, more attention, and more compensation. And we have lots of people that are willing to encourage that victimhood behavior so they can get paid to take care of you, right? We have ejected God from our public square. We have thrown him out of our schools, from our government, from our conversation. Interestingly enough, God has made people to worship. We're wired to worship. We will worship. And now that we have in our country today, we are not allowed to worship God in the public square. What do we worship? We have replaced him with a messianic state. In the United States today. You can call him a king if you want, like Israel. But we no longer are willing to be ruled by God as a nation. We want to be ruled by politicians. And, by the way, I'm not critiquing government. I'm not critiquing this form of government. It's the best thing that humans can develop. Believe me, you go someplace else in the world, you come back home, you go, thank you, Jesus. We have a somewhat functional representative government, so I'm not critiquing. I'm saying compared to being ruled by God, being ruled by humans is a really bad deal. But if you're going to be ruled by humans... We have been blessed with one of the best systems ever. Winston Churchill said, democracy is just really not a good way to run a government, but it's better than any other thing we've found so far. Okay? But humans will worship. So we, in our culture, we want the government to provide for us. We want the government to protect us. We want the government to care for our needs. We want the government to be our Messiah. 
We're no different than the nation of Israel, right? Interesting. Why do you think Israel was willing to pay this very high price for a human king when God would protect him at no cost at all? You ever think about that? Yeah, they want a king, and they have God, Jehovah, the king of the universe, as their king, and he's not good enough. Interesting. So Israel's demanding a human king. And I look at that, and I'm thinking, have we ever demanded anything of God? Have you ever said to God, I must have this or that? God, I must be married. I must have this job. I got to buy this house because if I don't get this one, I'll never get another one. I got to marry this person. I've only had one offer so far, right? <laughs> this is the last fish in the river, right? I've got to have this degree. I've got to have this salary. I've got to have this level of comfort. I have to have so many likes on my Facebook, right? Got to be popular. And here's where we get in trouble. If God doesn't give it to me, I'm going to get it myself. Whoa, right? We're not necessarily willing to wait for God to give it to me. I'm going to go after it myself. That's what Israel says. So God says, have it your way. You want a king? I've told you the cost. You demand the king. You're now going to learn by experience what you refuse to learn by instruction. It, experience is a very, very, very expensive education. But it's a, it's a guaranteed one we won't forget. Israel's willing to pay a very high price for a king, a very fallible king, and I'll tell you why I think this is true. If they have a human king, they can control the king. They can influence the king. They can actually kill the king, right? And that happened throughout Israel's history. Quite a few of their kings got murdered, especially in the northern kingdom. If God is our king, who's in control? God. And for the believer, that is a source of great comfort. But our flesh hates it. Our fallen human nature wants to be in charge. We don't bow the knee to Jesus naturally. The Holy Spirit in us teaches us, coaches us, reminds us that our place of power is on our knees. That is not natural to the human animal. The human being, unredeemed, wants to be in charge. And unredeemed people don't want God in charge. They want to be in charge. They're looking for an opportunity to put a king in control so that they can control the king. God's going to let them have their way. Verse 21. Now, after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the first time I read this, I thought, God can't hear? I mean, they've been talking. And Samuel just says, God, here's what they said, like God didn't hear it just from them, right? From your mouth to God's ears. It's not that God needed Samuel to inform him of Israel's opinions. It's that Samuel needs to share his burdens with the Lord. Have you ever had somebody give you a really hard message? And you went to the Lord and you said, Lord, did you just hear that? Did you just hear what they told me? Did you hear that, Lord? And what does he say? Yeah, I heard it. I got it. Samuel needs to take this burden of this people and bring it to the Lord. And I would suggest to you that there is no burden in your life that God has designed for you to carry by yourself. When your kids and your grandkids or your boss at work or you're the boss at work, whatever, when you hear these heartbreaking messages, what do you do with them? I mean, they're saying, 
Samuel, you're out of here. You know, we want a king. We don't want a judge. We don't want God. And we sure don't want you, man. How do you deal with that level of rejection? Who do you take it to? You take it to the king. You take it to the king. Verse 22. Tom, if you're getting ready, you might get your prayer requests going here. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Samuel, second time, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. And I'm thinking, okay, God has told them now, here's the cost, here's the consequence, you're not going to like it, I'm not going to listen to you, have it your way. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go up every man to his city. When God says to you, have it your way, that is not a benediction, that is judgment. That is judgment. God has given Israel her own way, even though it's going to cause them great pain. But God knows that's the only way they're going to learn, right? Someone told me one time that we learn 10% from instruction. 10%. That's what we're doing now, right? Instruction. You listen to Pastor Roger, that's instruction. Now, that's a pretty easy way to learn, would you say? You go here, at Pastor Roger, Pastor Phil, preach. You get 35 minutes, you can take notes in air-conditioned comfort. Is that pretty easy? Pretty easy way to learn, 10%. 30% of your learning comes from example. I watched mom and dad walk with Jesus. I watched, I'm, I'm observing models, right? Example, I'm watching. 60 to 70%, you got to get scar tissue. Experience. You just live it. If I could translate all the scar tissue I've picked up so you wouldn't have to pick it up, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Unfortunately, we humans are slow learners. But God has given us instruction. He says, you could save yourself so much grief. Just do what it says, right? Is that difficult? You understand that, right? Just do what it says. Psalm 106, verse 15. This is a hard verse for me. But it's true. Psalm 106, 15. And God gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. You got it, but now you don't want it. But you got to live with it. It's part of the process of learning to trust. Remember, thy will be done is always better than my will be done. Amen? Okay. In review, grace is not hereditary. As parents and grandparents, you can influence, you can model, you can be examples, but each person must choose to follow Jesus themselves. Number two, prayerlessness is pride because it presumes that we can live successfully without God. Number three, this is so practical. Every decision in your life involves costs and benefits. When we buy a car, we're pretty good about costs and benefits, but boy, some of the big decisions in life we're not necessarily good at. Wise decisions calculate long-term costs and benefits. Foolish decisions only consider immediate costs and benefits. You know something? If the Lord tells me to do something, do I need to do a cost-benefit analysis? No. Nope. Nope. It's called obedience. If the Lord tells me not to do something, do I need to do a cost-benefit analysis? No. Nope. Don't do it. But many times you've got a decision that's morally neutral. God didn't say do it, don't do it. You need wisdom. Do a cost-benefit analysis. And you know how you get wisdom to do the cost-benefit analysis? Pray before you decide. Pray before you decide. 
Lastly, when you disobey God's word, we get to learn from experience what we refuse to learn from instruction, okay? I'm interested in you paying low tuition, low tuition, right? So learn from God's word. Okay, you got enough to work on for another 167 hours? <laughs> Love you guys, read ahead. Now that you know, 